When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are going to talk to someone I am going to call the Galileo of sports writers. The person who saw something five years ago and said something that was mocked and stood his ground and has now been vindicated. The issue was NFL quarterback Geno Smith, the player who, when given an opportunity in Seattle this season, has gone from journeyman quarterback to MVP candidate and all in seven games. So our guest called this when next to nobody else came even close. His name is Chuck Modiano. Let's talk to Chuck right now. Chuck, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Hey, great to be here, DZ. So let's just put it right on the table. What did you see in Geno Smith that few others saw? Well, I love that you're asking about Gino. I love that he is getting this uh, opportunity. It should have happened years ago. Um, what I saw was videotape. Let's start with videotape. If you look at all of the Geno Smith backers, and there are not that many of us, and I mean backers with, at the end of the Jets and with the Giants and for years before the Seahawks, we all watched videotape. And his accuracy has always been incredible, right? And when you go even back to the last four games of his Jets 2014 season, second season, he had a very bad first half on a horrible team with no wide receivers. But if you go to the end and Eric Decker is healthy, the first time he had a starting wide receiver healthy for any stretch, he balled out with Eric Decker. I believe he had the second highest passer rating in the last four games. Eric Decker had a 220-yard game, more than he ever had under Peyton Manning throwing to him. Even if you go to his lone game with the Giants and rewatch every single throw, you will see an incredibly accurate passer. You'll see drop passes by terrible receivers. But he did not throw one ball that was not catchable. His worst ball thrown was a caught by Evan Ingram, who incidentally had his best game of the year, not the other uh, 15 with Eli. So you see his accuracy on film. You see, even see that last year. You saw it in preseason, even though there were 10 drop passes. So anytime we get a glimpse, we see it. We also see the improvement that happened in the back end of the second year when he stopped forcing throws, which is very common for rookies, forcing throws into tight windows that didn't exist because he had terrible receivers. And now he started pulling back and holding that back. So we saw videotape, we saw improvement in stats, and we analyzed the receivers that he was throwing to. And when you analyze the receivers that he was throwing to, it was straight garbage. Unless you think David Nelson is, is a great player, unless you think Jeremy Curley is a great player. And if no other um, quarterback was able to have success with him, why would you ask that for Geno Smith? 
but it, it's very clear the talent has always been there, but people didn't bother to check under the hood. Yeah, people not only didn't bother, but people, uh, like some very high profile people on the internet mocked you terribly five years ago when you wrote a column about Gino's potential. Um, what were they missing and what do you think, I mean, these are people who are ostensible football experts. Yes. Uh, at least they certainly watch enough football. Yes. <laughs> as football experts. But what were they missing and what, what was the source of that particular blindness? Well, you know, there was mockery. There's own mockery. Anytime I tweeted or wrote an article about uh, Gino's potential, and that article is called his insane untapped potential. It was Gino sucks. Gino sucks. And you have to understand there was an incredible onslaught of hate media coming in his second year with the Jets. It happened. He lost seven games in a row. He had no, he had a horrible team. He had no receivers. And you know what? If you go through history, look at Troy Aikman. He went 0-11 his first year. Look at Steve Young. He was a terrible. Drew Brees, who I make the direct comparison to, because he has almost identical career start to Drew Brees, both statistically and his team's fluctuations, meaning they both had took over bad teams. They both went 8-8 eight and eight and surprised everyone their first year. Jets were picked to win three games. They won eight. And then they had a lull at the beginning of their second year, went one and seven. Drew Brees did the same thing and then came back at the end of the second year. So this is not uncommon for a young quarterback growing, particularly stuck on a bad team. But what happened with Gino, and he's a young black quarterback, we have to be clear about that. Because if you go through history, um, you know, white quarterbacks get second, third, fourth, or in the case of Ryan Fitzpatrick, nine chances to, to, to make good. And G Gino was wrote, was written off that as he famously has said but he ain't right back and that's really important why was he written off he was written off of those seven games and he was written off of of partly because he was punched at the beginning of the season from a teammate and um so he broke his jaw he never lost his job on the field remember that he never lost a job on the field and all of the hate media kept coming his immaturity um all of these other things as if fights don't happen in the locker room and They've been writing about this punch for like seven years. Okay, you could ESPN did an investigative report two years ago when he was coming back with the Seahawks. That was their big story. And they reposted it again this year. For some reason, once a, a, a black athlete, I have to say a black athlete, becomes a punchline, you know, and he was in this situation, they become profitable. This is capitalism at work. You're, their clicks go up. Geno sucks was a commodity. Gino sucks with something everyone could get behind. And that commodity and those clicks and that extra money was far more valuable than actual analysis. Mm -hmm. And if you did actual analysis, you got pushed, you got mocked. I got relentlessly mocked Stephen Ruiz, who, who writes for the, um, the Ringer now, who was a big tape watcher and, and supporter. He got mocked. We all got mocked. Um, ben McAdoo, who... One who saw Gino's talent got fired. Former coach Jerry of the Giants. Long. Yeah, thank you. Ben <laughs> McAdoo was the head coach of the Giants. He got fired the next week after an incredible backlash led by Mike Francesca and everybody backlash. How can you sit Eli Manning, who was washed for at least a couple of years? Oh, yeah. How can you dare do that? And then the second part was, and for Gino Smith, like, like that's the second part, right? So the first part is, how do you dare? sit Eli Manning, who is 
done at that point? Who is cooked? Who is a statue? Who couldn't move? And Ben McAdoo said, I want someone more mobile. Let me put in Gino. He was right. And he, he had the best game with Evan Ingram and probably one of the best games the entire year. He didn't get a, a, a win at the end, but he was right. And he got fired off the backlash. And longtime GM Jerry Reese, who won two Super Bowls and the lone black GM, got fired as well the next week off this media backlash. So we have to understand that Gino did not lose his job again because of on-field performance. He lost it over a customer service backlash that the owner first signed off on the switch. And then when the media came and the dogs came and hysteria came, they switched and they fired everyone. And when you really think about that was a prelude in a different way to Colin Kaepernick, meaning Colin Kaepernick is not playing today because of the perceived or real white fan backlash that would be angry and threatened to never watch an NFL game again. They did it for at least perceived economic reasons, not because he couldn't play. Well, Gino was pushed aside and cast aside for perceived economic reasons because he had the audacity to follow Eli Manning. Mm. Now, with Gino, it was always about fit and being in these incredibly difficult situations. First and foremost, just to ask you about the Giants. Um, you You make it sound not only correct, but brave for the Giants to take a chance with him. Yeah. But wouldn't a counter argument be that they did Gino no favors by putting him in an impossible situation that anyone could have seen would have been an impossible situation? I don't know. I don't know if that is true. Okay. And here's something else I don't know. Uh, so I, I can't answer the question, but I've always wondered to this day of, if the article I had written ha- had an impact because I, I wrote this article on Thanksgiving. And Eli had a bad game and Giants lost again. I think they were like one and seven. I can't remember exactly. And I wrote this 3,300 uh, word article, the insane untapped potential of Geno Smith. And I have a line in there. I said, I'm not writing this for Giants readership. I'm writing this for Giants leadership. Lo and behold, come Monday after Thanksgiving, that's when this, the switch is announced. So a lot of people have come to me and said, hey, hey that, that helped inform their switch. Is that true? Is that not true? I, I'll never know, right? But this switch happens and I was behind it and I've never in my life rooted so hard for a, a Giants victory for any, because I knew that the, the fate of Gino was behind it. Not that they were going to blame the defense collapsing in the fourth quarter. Right. So Gino makes us good comeback in the fourth quarter, despite drop passes and, and, and he, but he doesn't get the ball back. Derek Carr comes flying down the field and he does this by the way, on his first game after an ACL, injury which is incredible you said not have one poorly thrown ball after acl surgery incredible so i when 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 the giants owner said ben mcadoo will survive the season i thought ben mcadoo would survive the season and then when you take jerry reese who won two super bowls who was with the giants two decades who's supposedly supposed to be highly respected when they get hot fired the next week afterwards, yeah, I was surprised. I didn't think they, they didn't do Gino any favors because no one was going to do Gino any favors. Remember, that his, the Jets media, the New York City media, including where I used to write at the New York Daily News, were so brutal that any chance is you got to take it. So he was given the chance, and then it was aborted. 
And so we have to look at not that he was given a chance, because I think he would have done. I think everyone would have seen the difference over Eli if he got that six game stretch. I believe everyone would see it. Now, he didn't have the talent around him on Seattle, so you wouldn't have seen it so much. You didn't have DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett uh, um, around him. But everyone would have noticed after six games. So I don't blame the switch on Ben McAdoo. He did the right thing. I don't blame Jerry Reese. He did the right thing. I blame media who attacked with such veracity um, Mm -hmm. that it it, it brought like a mob. It brought uh, people were calling up. I'm not going to stand for this. I'm going to withdraw my tickets. And what happened? Mara, the owner, flipped. Mara was informed of the decision and co-signed the original decision. He responded to his raging white customer service base, which was egged on and a fire lit by this crazy media. Um, And I bring up Mike Francesco because he had an epic rant, right? And his epic rant was probably the worst of a bunch of rants. So no, I don't, I I think Ben McAdoo did the right thing. I think Ben McAdoo is owed an apology. I definitely think Jerry Reese is owed an apology um, of, of how they were treated. And everyone will see that they're wrong. Okay, so they're one of their fourth coach now. First time Giants have played well. That's five years. Y'all lost five years because you wanted to wash Eli Manning over giving Geno a chance. How were the last five years? How did mm-hmm. Joe Judge work out? How did Dave Gettleman work out? You did that to yourselves. And why did you do that to yourselves? Because you wouldn't give a young black quarterback with potential a chance over somebody who is clearly washed. And let's not act like quarterbacks towards the end of their career don't end uh, end ceremoniously Eli Manning probably got three or four extra years just off those two Super Bowls not off performance he was treated with kid gloves he was treated very very nice there is no problem in the fact that it was time that he was done he was done yeah uh absolutely now you know with Gino as as I think people are guessing and getting from this it's it's always been about fit and these terrible opportunities <laughs> with awful, awful management in a ridiculous media market, talking about New York. Um, what makes Seattle a good fit, other than the wide receivers? We know they have top wide receivers in Lockett and Metcalf. Yeah. What makes them a good fit beyond that? And do you think they believed in Geno at the start of this year, or do you think they were tanking and he has – not unlike Kurt Warner with the Rams, sort of unwittingly brought them to prominence. No. We're going to start this conversation with Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll, like Ben McAdoo, knew what he had. Ben McAdoo had glowing remarks in training camp, said, wow. He was wow when he saw Geno play in training camp. He said, I'm excited to work with him. He mentioned his footwork. He mentioned his throwing. He mentioned his arm talent. He was excited. He wanted Ben McAdoo used to be the quarterback's coach of Aaron Rodgers. He knows quarterbacks. He knows quarterback talent. Ben McAdoo did not have the resume nor the pedigree to withstand the storm of starting Geno. And what that did is that sent a message to all GMs and coaches. You want to try to start Geno? Well, there could be a consequence. Don't think others didn't get that message who might have considered calling for him when their starter went down or something like that. Fast forward to Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll does have the resume. Pete Carroll does have the pedigree. If you watch the draft, everyone was saying Seattle should draft Malik Willis. They didn't draft him or any other quarterback. If you watch um, the preseason, the fans. one of those people. (laughs) Right, right, right. The fans and the media were saying Drew Locke is the guy. 
Drew Locke is the guy. They all wanted Drew Locke. And the, and the thinking went, repeated many times, is that, yes, Drew Locke does throw these boneheaded interceptions. Drew Locke has plenty of talent. I'll be the first to say, Drew Locke has talent, but keeps throwing these boneheaded, two boneheaded plays every game. It doesn't seem to stop. It didn't stop in preseason, right? He, he, there's something mental wrong, mentally wrong in that sense that would need to be corrected. So the, the thinking was, yeah, Geno is probably better now, but Drew Locke has the higher ceiling. And I was saying, no, Gino has the higher ceiling. They would say, we know what Gino has. No, you don't know what Gino has. He's never been given the supportive opportunity with real talent around him. You know who knew what Gino has? Pete Carroll knew what Gino has. He watched him in practice the last three years. He resisted drafting a quarterback. He resisted trading for Baker Mayfield or Jimmy G, which is, was on all these Seattle um, local websites. So he drifted to draft, uh, uh, excuse me, he Resisted the draft. He resisted the trades for Baker and Jimmy G. He resisted Drew Locke. He from get-go, he said Geno's in, in the lead. He told people from the start so they would like go easy on this quarterback controversy. Of course, you know, Drew Locke did not do as well as him. He threw three interceptions in his last game. Geno played incredible, had 10 drop passes, so some people missed it. Pete Carroll knew, and he wanted to see. And to answer your question, were they tanking? No, they weren't tanking. Because none of the other moves they were doing smelled like tanking. He had an incredible draft. I mean, incredible draft. He, he got Charles Cross in the first round. So now you've got a better offensive line yet under Russ. In fairness to Russ, because I don't like the whole pitting Russ versus Geno thing, the offensive line is better because of Russ, because you traded Russ. And the first time since Russ has been there, you get like a number nine pick. You, you, you never get a 25th pick every year. You get the number nine pick and you use that for a Charles Cross, who could be a, you know, elite left tackle for, for over a decade. Left tackle is the hardest position to get that protects a quarterback's blind side. Charles Cross is going to be there. They get a steal in the third round, Abraham Lucas. So you plugged in two big offensive line holes that Russ had. And Russ helped give you that help give Gino that in return. And then, yes, you know about the, about the receivers. And then they draft Kenneth Walker in the second round. Rashad Penny, when he's healthy, is very good. He has a, a career of injury history, but they drafted Kenneth Walker. And we see the last couple of weeks what Kenneth Walker ha is doing. So Gino, for the first time in his career, has anything resembling talent around him. And then even, I would argue, above average talent around him when you're talking about Metcalf and Lockett. So you're, we're seeing that now. We're seeing what could have been or in the few glimpses that he had in the past when he had just marginal talent. But you know what people don't do? What people cannot do, and that's all about fans, is, is imagine a quarterback with terrible talent around them, what they might look like with good talent around them. What, what, what is Cam Newton's career could have been if he didn't have bum-wide receivers his whole career? What, how much better Donovan Don McNabb could have been if he had didn't have bum wide receivers his whole career besides one and a half years with T.O. And I'm bringing up black quarterbacks in general because we find out, including Kaepernick's in his final year, throwing to Jeremy Curley and uh, Patton. We find out when a black quarterback gets bum receivers, they say it's the black quarterback's fault. They say he can't read defenses. They make an intellectual framing argument about their limitations. And often when a white quarterback has bum receivers, they say, Let's get him some good receivers. Let's see how he shows up it, 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 with more support. And that very difference is what I call racism. Racism in assessment, racism by GMs, and racism by fans.
And you know who's not racist in that way, even in that subconscious way? Pete Carroll. And Pete Carroll wanted the world to see what Gino could do, and now everybody is seeing it. But Pete Carroll knew. Mm, strong case. Now, let me ask you this. Is, you know, a lot of the media now is trying to turn this into some kind of a feel-good story. Like, here's hard luck Geno Smith finally getting his chance. And it's, it's almost like a Horatio Alger story. Like, if you stay committed, stay focused, put in the work, it'll all work out. So I know you feel good about this, Chuck. Yeah. But is this a feel-good story? I feel great about it, but it's absolutely not a feel-good story. Listen, in the time Geno was out, Kirk Cousins made like $150 million, <laughs> Okay. Uh, so, so we're talking, if I, if I came to your home, assuming you like made $150 million and I stole $100 million from you, that'd be just some serious grand larceny. Well, the media and the NFL and all of those who pushed Gino to the background kind of took over $100 million out of his pocket because that's what he would have made if he got a chance that most white quarterbacks get. It's not a feel-good story. It's a story of discrimination. It is a story of young black quarterbacks not getting the growing potential to grow uh, uh, the chance to have bumps and bruises to throw a few interceptions when they were young and then get the benefit of better support to see how they will do which we always see with white quarterbacks the Matt Stafford won his first playoff game in his 13th season there are no black Matt Staffords okay let's be clear about that Derek Carr still doesn't want a, a, a playoff game and I'm not saying that's a barometer but I'm saying black quarterbacks continually do not get those second chances. There are no black Ryan Fitzpatrick's for sure. Um, so you could go on and on and on. And maybe for the first year that I could remember in a long time, we saw, we see two, we see Jalen who was getting killed last year in the media is getting a shot and he's showing what he has to do. And now Gino is. So when, when folks tell me, when I call about the discrimination in the assessment of the black quarterback position, and they point to people like, well, look at um, how, how Russ came out and look at Deshaun Watson, how he came out of the gate and look at Mahomes. Well, I'll say to you this, they all came out of the, the gate great. They all came out as all-stars from like day one. If you need that to happen for a black quarterback to be co-signed, then you're practicing racism, whether you re uh, realize it or not. That's not normal. Most quarterbacks grow and bump their head. And if you're not allowing the black ones to bump their head with the same patience and the same potential and the same reasoning as white ones, then you are practicing racism, whether consciously or subconsciously. And Geno Smith was a victim of that and media racism on top of all of that. Mm, Chuck Modiano. So one more question for you. You've been very generous with your time. I, I do want to ask you one question because you're a big baseball fan. Uh, yes, sir. I know you're rooting for Houston. I know you're down like a clown with Dusty Baker. It's awesome. But I wanted to ask you about your former favorite team, the New York Yankees. Yeah. Because I, I, I would never, I'm not one of those people who asks about the Yankees just because they're the Yankees. But this story, because I'm just, I'm from New York and I was a Mets fan growing up and I'm just not that impressed. But this story really did catch my eye. Did, I was wondering if you saw it and what your reaction is, that Yankee players are calling their agents to see about getting out of New York because they were so literally shocked and taken aback 
that during the AL Championship Series against the Houston Astros, they were booed at home. And to top it off, the thing that really struck them was that Aaron Judge, coming off his 62 homer season, and yeah, he had a terrible playoffs, but he was also booed viciously every time he went up to the plate. What's your what's your reaction? First of all, did, did you see the story, and what's your reaction to it? I, I missed the story, but I do have a reaction to Yankee fans because I used to be one, and I've never co-signed a bully. Right. I grew up in New York City. I used to be a, a diehard Yankee fan growing up a child. I never liked the booing, period, you know, because I, I never felt that if somebody went over four and struck out, that the booing would help. I'm not one of those, I want to light a fire under them. I don't believe, I have no research that tells me if you boo someone that they're going to play better. In, that, that I, In fact, often it's the opposite effect. And so I don't believe that. That's not my definition of support. Now I'll tell you what. There are millions of, of New York Yankee fans who will disagree with me and Mets fans and Philly fans and a tons of fans. And when I bring that up in social media, I get uh, hit with a lot of misogyny, by the way. But anyway, I don't believe that. Now, let's go past that belief because I'm, I'm in a minority. How can you boo Aaron Judge? Like, how is that even possible? Like, I, in what universe could you boo Aaron Judge, the man who hit 62 home runs, the man who nearly won the triple crown, who carried you on his back. And if I'm Aaron Judge and I did all of that and I had a bad series, we understand playoffs are a crapshoot. We get that. And that is our reaction. And the, the line of credit that I built up over all that time is this is what I get. This is how fast you could turn on me. Yeah, I might be peeking over at the San Francisco Giants, my hometown, too, to follow in Barry Bonds' footsteps. I might look at them a little bit harder. Did you really love me? Did you really appreciate the 62 home runs? Because it sure didn't seem like it. Wow. Well, Chuck, you know, that, that's, that's really helpful. And give us quick your World Series predictions. We know who you want, but don't yeah. tell me with your heart. Tell me with your mind. Who do you like in this series? I like the Astros in six or less even um, because they have an outstanding bullpen. And, and any Dusty Baker team throughout history has had an outstanding bullpen, both in the, in the regular season and the playoffs. What Dusty Baker has almost never had or very rarely had throughout his whole career is starting pitching. He's never had that. Last season, he somehow made it to the end of the playoffs despite his starting pitching of a 6.36 ERA and only averaging three and two thirds innings per start. His relievers were logging like starter innings. So it was like a miracle they made it that far. Now this year, two things have happened. Justin Verlander is back. He didn't, wasn't there. Lance McCullers, who got injured in the first round of the playoffs, is back. I believe they would have won the World Series last year if Lance McCullers didn't get injured. And then Framber Valdez has moved up to an even higher level. So you take the bullpen, which Dusty has always been masterful with, has always overachieved, and now you add starting pitching, which he has almost never had, and I believe you're looking at the Astros in six or less. All right. And Chuck, what music are you listening to these days? Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question. We're talking about sports. Um, I know, but I, I asked this of all my guests. Oh, I mean, listen, uh, well, I think I set the alarm um, this morning, you know, you're probably not expecting it 
right? When I set the alarm, I want something that might like wake me up, but not wake me up too harshly that could glide me into getting up. I put on Sia this morning. I put on this, I said, I said, get puts on Sia so Sia could glide me up, you know, not too harsh. Um, and then I would just like in five minutes wake up. If it's too soft, you stay asleep. So it's really hard to hit that sweet spot. Nice. So you listen to Sia. I, I do, I do. I've been listening <laughs> like to a whole range of things, but I'm, I'm thinking about what I was listening to this morning and it was Sia and I recommend if you're trying to wake up because once that crescendo hits now, you might have enough blood to wake up. I got you, I got you. Uh, we'll be back right after with a, we'll be back right after this with a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now, normally I do some choice words right here. I was thinking of saying something about uh, the Portland soccer situation where there looks to be a very serious movement to turn the teams into fan-owned operations and kick out the current ownership, a current ownership comprised by one human being named Merritt Paul Paulson, uh, whose father was Hank Paulson, Bush's Treasury Secretary, who bailed out the government after the 2008 crisis. And his son, whose name is Merritt, yes, Merritt, yes, I find that very funny, uh, he could be booted and fan ownership could be on the agenda in Portland. But I'm not going to go into that too much because this has been a difficult week because of the passing of somebody who is just one of the great theorists uh, of our time, uh, Mike Davis. I just wanted to say a few words about Mike Davis. Um, His... his, He's written just some amazing books, Prisoners of the American Dream, um, Monster at Our Door, Planet of Slums. But for me, I first read Mike Davis's City of Quartz when I was 19. And I still have that same copy on my bookshelf, all dog-eared. And I must have lent that thing out at least half a dozen times. It still has my sister's slightly faded, slightly smudged inscription wishing me a happy birthday and saying pretty firmly that I have to read this book. I remember taking her words as a dare or maybe a light threat and cracked it open, unaware of what it would do to me by the time I hit the last page. You know, we all know about the books you cannot put down. I mean, for me, it's Walter Mosley. But what about the books you have to put down? Have you ever read a book like that? A book that you have to put down? You put them down because their words ring too true. Or you have to put it down because you know that to read any more would mean that you actually might have to do something about the brutal state of the world. So you consume these books in fits and starts, pacing the room in between reading jags. That was me with City of Quartz. I understand my political life as existing somewhat neatly between when I first picked that incredible book up 
and when a couple of sleepless nights later, I put it down. I, I, I mourn losing Mike Davis, but I'm heartened by the thought of future generations picking up any of his brilliant books and finding something that they have to put down. Mike Davis reminds me so much of the words of uh, Eugene Debs, who once said, the heart of an international socialist never beats a retreat. Those were Mike Davis's politics and don't wanna hide that for a second, but he lived those politics from a working class family fighting his way uh, to a point where he was one of the most important prophetic voices of the last 30 years. So Mike Davis, raising a glass to my writing hero of all heroes. Mike Davis, 1946 to 2022. Mike Davis, presente. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much, Chuck Modiano, for joining us to talk about Geno Smith. Thank you to my producer, David Tigabu. Everybody out there, support the show. You can go to edgesports.com and do it. You can go to patreon.com slash edgeofsports. Uh, there's a lot of ways, and they would be awesome. Uh, for everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Peace.